This is A New Angle, a show about cool people doing awesome things in and around Montana. I'm your host, Justin Angle. This show is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. Hey folks, welcome back and thanks for tuning in. Today's guest is Michael Dubin, founder and former CEO of Dollar Shave Club, a business that revolutionized direct-to-consumer marketing and created ripple effects throughout the global economy. Everybody I've met in, in all, all the corners of the state that I've spent time in are really excited to, to do big things and put Montana on the map. Michael is spending a lot of his time in Montana these days, and I'm excited to learn more about what he's up to. Michael, thanks for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. So tell us, where did you grow up and what did your parents do? Philadelphia. Pennsylvania. Uh, my mother was a teacher and then she was in real estate and my dad was an attorney. Okay. So you were spending some time in Montana. You spent time in Montana over the years. Talk about your connection to the state of Montana. So the first time I came to Montana was in 2001 and I was on a road trip with some buddies right after I graduated college and we ended up in Bozeman and I was like, this is it. This is where it's at. And, and obviously that was over 20 years ago and Bozeman has changed quite a bit, you know, so much so that it's, it's kind of hard for me to even remember and recognize where I was in town when I was, when I was there, but it's still got all the magic. The magic has evolved. And, and I know that that comes with some complications, especially for folks that have been there for a long time, but it's, it is a, you know, it's a beautiful state. Um, I, I've, I've come back there over the years in all four seasons. Uh, you know, I've been up north, uh, you know, near Glacier and Whitefish and Flathead Lake, you know, down in Missoula and uh, down in the Bitterroot. And, you know, Montana has it all. So let's talk about Dollar Shave Club. I mean, I've been kind of interested in your company or your former company for a long time. I and mean, it just came along at such a ripe time and in many ways revolutionized direct to consumer marketing. I think many po- people's entry point with, with the brand and the company is that amazing advertisement that you launched with. Tell us about the Genesis story. Like how did the idea of getting into this industry and the motivation to do it come, come to fruition? Like a lot of businesses, you know, it starts with a key insight. And the insight here was buying razors is a huge pain in the ass. Mm -hmm. The razors at retail are always locked. You always have to find the person with the key. And then, you know, you have to wait for them. And, and, you know, then you have to wait in line. And it's just a really frustrating consumer experience. And so I had had that observation when I was living in New York City right after college. And Uh, But I didn't do anything with it at the time. And then I met my friend's wife's father at a holiday party in 2010. And he happened to be an importer of all sorts of things. He had a big warehouse filled with goods from Asia. And some of those goods included cake slicers and, and razors. And, you know, he said he knew that I had web experience and marketing experience. So he said, do you have, you know, any interest in taking these products off my hands? And, and I said, well, no to the cake slicers, but sure for the razors uh, because I'd had that insight, you know, earlier that, 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 you know, buying razors was a, was a pain in the ass and, and there was probably a better way to do it. And I had the idea for Dollar Shave Club pretty much right away. So, so that's how, you know, it's, it's like anything, you know, it's like a strong insight and then some serendipity. Talk about that ability to kind of 
communicate that key insight so clearly and so viscerally to so many people? Yeah, you know, obviously a key insight to you, it resonates with folks, but how do you then sort of make that come to life? We, I, decided that it would be good for us to make a video that told the story. If you can make a good video or make a good commercial, you know, it's better than text on screen. So I had some background in improv and and sketch comedy. And so I used those talents uh, to to write this video over the course of a month in in, uh, in late 2011. And then I enlisted the help of a friend who I had done some sketch work with when I was living in New York and and asked her if she would direct it. You know, her name was Lucia, and she ultimately went on to create Broad City and Hacks on HBO. And she's just an incredible talent and has been, you know, it's funny, our, our careers, so to speak, you know, changed trajectory right at the same time because yeah. of that video that we did together. And so, you know, we just, we, we used humor and humor is a powerful device. Hi, I'm Mike, founder of dollarshaveclub.com. What is dollarshaveclub.com? Well, for a dollar a month, we send high quality razors right to your door. Yeah, a dollar. Are the blades any good? No, our blades are great. You know, whenever you're telling a story, if you can evoke um, a visceral reaction from the consumer, make them laugh, make them cry, say something poignant, you're going to stick in their minds, you know, more so than if it's just a straight up sales pitch uh, or, or a sloppy sales pitch, you know, writing writing great ads is really hard. You have to be brief, you have to be direct, and you you have to make sure you're not including uh, too much. You know, you see a lot of ads where companies are just trying to cram way too much information into sure. too short a time, and and it doesn't work. So, so you know, being mindful of all those things, uh, we shot that video in October of 2011, and then uh, used it to raise some money for, for Dollar Shave Club uh, over the next six months, and then launched that video in 2012. It's important for listeners to think back to 2011. I mean, this was a time where internet was a lot different than it is now. Social media was certainly a lot different than it is now. Brands weren't really communicating to their customers through, I mean, certainly we're, we're communicating with video through advertising and so forth, but not really through YouTube and not, you weren't seeing a lot of consumer packaged goods communicating directly to customers in the way that, that you all did. Yeah, that's 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 exactly right. I mean, in 2011, it was relatively the dark ages. I mean, I can't think of of too many direct to consumer businesses that were talking straight to their customers and selling online. The only ones I can think of really are Warby Parker and Bonobos. I think those companies kind of started the wave, and then I think we put some real wind behind the sails on the wave. That's to mix my metaphors. But we really accelerated the pace of development in the D2C space because I think people saw what was possible. When you have a good product, you tell a great story and you're providing value to the consumer. So yeah, we were really fortunate to take advantage of a quiet ecosystem to grow really fast. And I think it's it's a lot harder nowadays than it was back in 2012 when we launched. Now everybody with an Instagram page is trying to sell you something. They're not only trying to sell you something, they're trying to sell you a subscription. So that seems like a key part of the plot too, is like you guys were one of the first movers with this direct-to-consumer subscription model uh, really changed the game of, of of marketing, of how businesses are run, how they're evaluated by the capital markets. Talk about the the moment where y'all thought that subscriptions was the way to do this. Yeah. Well, first, you know, I have to say that, you know, before you give us too much credit for, for creating something, I think it's important to point out 
you know, subscriptions, direct consumer subscriptions were available before Dollar Shave Club. You could subscribe to magazines. You could subscribe to your, your cable company. You know, subscriptions, direct to consumer was around, you know, and, and you could buy affordable razors on the internet before Dollar Shave Club. You, you could even buy our exact razor affordably on the internet before Dollar Shave Club. But it was the way you weave all of these things together and package it up to create value, emotional connection, and, you know, a couple other things to, to, to really say to the consumer, hey, you should give us a try. And I don't, I don't mean to trivialize, you know, what we did and how it changed the game, but I think it's important to recognize, you know, what we can take credit for and what, what we can't. So I think subscriptions worked for us because of the category, of the shaving category. And anybody that shaved knows that when you change your blade, you get a better shave. You know, it's more comfortable. It's a little bit closer and it feels great. You know, ultimately what the Dollar Shave Club subscription feature, if, I, if you want to call it that, did was it, it sort of started to condition folks to change their blade more regularly versus milking it longer than they ought to because they didn't want to go to the store and deal with that frustrating buying experience. So the subscription worked for us because of the category and because having the subscription made the consumer's experience with the product better. But there are a lot of companies that just try to launch a subscription because they love the way that recurring revenue looks on their financial statements. And they like, they like the idea of recurring revenue. And that's, that's not the right North Star. You know, the subscription has to work for the consumer. Uh, otherwise, you're going to build resentment. So let's talk about your time as CEO. I mean, you kind of had a variety of experiences leading Dollar Shave Club, but certainly not the sort of experience to position you to be the leader of such a large organization. Talk about you know your development from the leadership standpoint. Yeah, that's a long journey. It's a journey that, you know, never, never really stops. You know, when, when I got in the game, I was a very, you know, I'd had a career for 10 or so years in media and marketing and uh, brand development and a little bit of e-com, you know, and I had managed a few people, but I'd never run a company the size of, of what Dollar Shave Club ultimately became. Over the course of the 10 year journey, there were different, I would say, inflection points where uh, you sort of have to shed your skin and develop a new set of muscles so that you can continue the journey and your company can continue to thrive. Not always easy to do that. And uh, you learn from hiring experienced people around you. You learn from, uh, hopefully uh, you have access to some coaching and you can reach out and, and help and, and, and get the help that you need because you know rarely does it just sort of occur to you uh, how to grow as a leader, you know, and, and so you go from managing a company of, you know, one person yourself to five people, to 25 people, to a hundred people, to ultimately 350 people. And that's just, that's just a much different exercise. What was the process of learning those lessons? I mean, were you always sort of the person that, that knew that you had to put the best people around you as possible and learn from them? Or did that take some, some growing pains to be able to say, no, I need to hire people who are better writers and better leaders and better operationalists than, than I am to make this thing go to where we want it to get to. You know, it's easier in some areas 
to, to reach out for senior leadership because you literally just don't have the experience. So supply chain is an easy one or, you know, warehousing and shipping, you know, you can figure that stuff out to ship a couple packages when your business is small in the early days. Uh, but, but scaling an operation like that just requires a, a completely different set of muscles. Right. And so like, you don't even try to do that. And so it's easy to say, yeah, I need a senior head of supply chain or finance. You know, I can, I can bump my way around a spreadsheet. Okay. But certainly not to the level to create, you know, complex forecasts and scenario planning and, and pivot tables and all the other kind of stuff that ultimately you're going to need to do to, to run a, a complex organization. In areas where you have some expertise, maybe it gets a little, you know, harder to reach out or not harder, but you maybe are a little slower to reach out. So for example, if you have decent marketing instincts, you might be hesitant to go out and hire senior marketing talent because you think, hey, I'm pretty good and you know we're doing okay. And, and you do have to be scrappy for a little while. But eventually, again, uh, you know, there's the old saying, if you want to go fast, go, uh, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. So, you know, ultimately, if you want to drive scale in your business, you just, you're going to have to figure out a way to engage other people um, and grow your team. That, that's, that's just a non-negotiable. Some areas are easier to see it than, than in others. And a big part of the, the scale question, I assume, was the decision to sell to Unilever on several years back. And your story is somewhat unique in that you, know, you build this company, you sell it to a major conglomerate, and then you stick around for five or so more years as the CEO. Talk about that decision. Why Unilever? Why that time? How did that play out? Yeah, I mean, I think I think a couple of reasons. Number one, jumping into the arms of an acquirer who's excited about the business you've built for us was was the right thing to do because number one, it eliminated our need to ever go out and raise money again because now we had very deep pockets, you know, at our disposal, so to speak. Not that we, I mean, not at our disposal. Like, hey, give us some money, and they gave us money whenever we wanted. We obviously had to submit a plan, the, a sensible plan. Number two. Unilever is a huge company. You know they make the makers of Dove soap and Axe body spray and and you know Vaseline and a, and a, a ton of other huge brands. And you know when Dollar Shave Club was acquired, we were direct consumer only. And at some point, Unilever would want to take us to retail. You know that experience, rather than going out and trying to hire that experience. Uh, that experience was already, you know, quote, in the building when sure. it comes to when it comes to retail, uh, you know, at, at Unilever. And then a third was access to uh, the resources of the big company, non-financial resources in the form of IP, intellectual property. So formulations uh, for different products, you know, sophisticated procedures for developing those products. All of that stuff made a lot of sense for us. Uh, to take advantage of. So for us, it was really a, a no-brainer that it was a great strategic fit for us to sell to Unilever. And so you stick around for a few years, but leave the business, what, 2020? Is that uh, I left, so we were acquired in, in uh, 2016 and I stayed on until January of 2021. We'll be back to my conversation with Michael Dubin after this short break. A New Angle is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and UM's College of Business. Access to capital, broadband, and education are three ingredients any community needs for success. Hey folks, Accelerate Montana and the Women's Entrepreneurship and Leadership Lab have created eight online micro-courses 
designed to provide current and aspiring women business owners real-world solutions to your business problems. These courses are practical and hands-on and will give you skills and capabilities you can put to work on your business right away. Courses include topics such as managing finances, how to create value for your customers, and pivoting your business. For more information on each course and how to register, visit wellwbc.org slash microcourses. That's wellwbc.org slash microcourses. Hey, this is Coulter Nuanas from ESPN Missoula, and you're listening to A New Angle. Welcome back to A New Angle. We're talking about Dollar Shave Club and entrepreneurship with Michael Dubin. So relatively recently left, what is that like to be, you know, early 40s and kind of turning the page to something new? What's it like? Well, in some ways it's terrifying because you spend your whole life kind of grinding and, and wanting to make yourself into a success. And, you know, which is what I did in my 20s. And then my 30s was all about, you know, building Dollar Shave Club. Now it's, you know, I've got, you know, a lot of good years left, hopefully. And, and you know, I want to have an impact. And, and that's tremendously exciting, but also frustrating because, you know, this, the answer of what to do isn't immediately obvious. Sure. Um, but I'm fortunate that I'm in this position, of course. And not, every, not everybody gets, gets to have the, the luxury of time and choice when it comes to determining their, their career path. But yes, there are moments where I'm like, gee, what, what's, what's the right path. And, and when there are so many options, sometimes that can be overwhelming. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm in the midst of figuring all that stuff out right now. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned right at the, at the head of that answer is, is, is making an impact. And I would assume you, know, you go through a career arc that you've gone through. You must get a ton of inbound asking you to invest in this or donate your name to this or, or time or energy or, or whatever it is. What are your priorities for making an impact and how do you make choices uh, where you want to allocate your, your, your time, effort and resources? Well, I probably spend, you know, 5% of my time doing board stuff and, and advisory work. And I'm selective there because I, I want to make sure that there's a, you know, a give and a get, so to speak. I, I want to make sure that I'm giving valuable insight and time to these companies, but I also want to learn something. I don't spend, I don't really do much investing at all anymore just because I don't have the time to diligence companies. If I'm really excited about something or an entrepreneur, I'll do it. But I'm not, you know, I'm not keen on on just doing it to do it. Uh, I, I find myself wanting to get into the weeds more, and you're just not able to at scale when you're investing in your one person. You know, if you have a team, that's something different. So, so it's a little bit. So, not much investing. I started a wildfire nonprofit, which has been really interesting. As you know, in Montana, well, wildfires are a, a big part of our lives now, and everywhere in the West. And so, um, you know, I'm spending a little bit of time trying to get some regulations changed at the FAA so that drones can play a bigger role in the fight against wildfire. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm also um, leading some expeditions, you know, actually in Montana to raise awareness for the importance of uh, fuel mitigation and forest management. So that, that's that been super cool and connected me to some really interesting places. Doing a little creative writing. I've had a screenplay in my head for the last 20 years that I'm trying to 
get out. Uh, that's been a maddening but interesting journey. And then, you know, I spend a lot of time thinking about democracy in America and where we are as a country right now. And, and we live in some very interesting and challenging times. And, you know, I'm, I'm working to, to understand what my role can be in making sure that uh, future generations have a you know, a free and fair country to live in. So, you know, I've, and then I've got a couple other business ideas, um, but nothing that's pulling me off the sidelines. You spend time in Montana. You spend time interacting with the entrepreneurial community here, here in Montana. In your view, is there anything unique about the entrepreneurial community here in Montana and some of the attributes of the folks and what they're up to here? I mean, absolutely. You know, the first thing that comes to mind is, is the energy and the enthusiasm to do big things and put Montana on the map. Everybody I've met, you know, in in, in all all the corners of the state that I've spent time in, are really excited to to do big things and 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 put put Montana on the map. And it already is in some in some really interesting ways. So the energy for that is 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 palpable. You know, solving unique Montana problems also is is something that is it, people have an energy for, you know, as, as Montana changes and evolves, you know, one of the big challenges I see people excited about is, you know, how do you make sure that everybody comes along for the ride and that it's not just a story for the few. And, and, and that's, that's a great thing to have your eye on, whether you were born in state or you're new to Montana and spending time there, you know, that's in many ways a microcosm of, of what's happening in, in, in America more broadly. So, so the fact that there are smart people thinking about that right now is, is, is energizing, you know, and everybody's just really eager to connect and engage. And, and that's, you know, wonderful sort of open mind, open arms attitude that, that I think will go a long way. And it occurs to me that, you know, if you take the 10 plus years that you dedicated your life to, to Dollar Shave Club, I mean, it, it sort of encapsulates so many arcs of business history. I mean, we talked about the way direct-to-consumer marketing and, and branding w- would take place back or in 2010 to how it takes place now, how the economy has changed, how, you know, con- how brands communicate with consumers has changed the rise and you know who knows where social media is and where it's going if you were advising students now based on what you've sort of lived through these last 10 years i mean what are the what are the forces and things you see on the rise versus the things you think that we're learning okay maybe those weren't great ideas one of the questions i, I get a lot is how would you launch dollar shave club today in today's climate and the game the game is different because the tools are different because the the ecosystem has evolved. When I launched Dollar Shave Club, it was quiet from a D2C perspective. Now there's a ton of noise. Again, everybody with an Instagram or a TikTok is trying to sell you something and it's very crowded. And you're competing for eyeballs and attention with people who are not just in your category, but in other categories. So it's a very mm-hmm. noisy environment, number one. But on the other hand, it's, it's very easy to launch a website. Now you can have an e-commerce site looking good and running f- efficiently in an afternoon. And that's that's very different. But D to C only, I don't think is, you know, winning formula the way it was in, in 2011 or 12. I think, it, you know, it can be where you start, but I think pretty quickly you need to find ways to break through the noise in the real world and grab consumers' attention, get their, get their eyes and hands on the product uh, or service uh, as quickly as you can. 
it's just very hard to to do it in 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 that noisy online only environment. So it's and and then and then get to get to on the channel as fast as you can. Go on the channel from day one um, would be would be my advice. Sure. Let's take a moment to. Uh, Michael, I don't know if all listeners will know the term omni-channel. What, what does that mean? Omni-channel means, you know, the crudest definition is probably selling online and in retail, but both places. Now, retail could be your own retail, you know, brick and mortar. It could be a pop-up. It could be a mobile store. It could be through a retail partnership with a Target or a Ralph's or a Costco or an Albertson's or Kroger, you know, it could be anything where just a consumer can, you know, in a three-dimensional environment, that's not the metaverse, uh, it, you know, can touch your product or service and, and get an experience and purchase the product as well as online. And why is it important to be in all those places? I mean, for a while it was, you know, direct to consumer was considered, oh yeah, we can just eliminate the, all, all the intermediaries and, and, eliminate all those people that just suck out our margin. Why is it important to now have more of a portfolio of, of customer um, channels? I think it was always important. I think the, the conventional wisdom has evolved because operators are much smarter and switched on about the different types of consumers that are sure. out there and, and their preferences. Some consumers will always prefer to shop in retail. Some will always prefer to shop online. Some prefer to do both. Uh, depending on the occasion or the circumstances, you know, in, in one category or the category, in one category, they may prefer convenience of online in another category. Convenience actually means going to the store and buying. So there are a multitude of different motivating beliefs uh, for the consumer. And, and I think, I think operators are much more switched on to that. So I think in the early days, just because there were so many DTC companies that blew up quickly, folks were like, oh, that's, that's the future and retail's dead. You know, those folks that were in business in 2011 and 12 and 13, 14, remember the headlines, retail's dead. And uh, that was uh, much, much overstated. You know, I think people know better now. And so in our, in our remaining time, I and mean, you mentioned a moment ago, um, some of the activities and areas where you're allocating your efforts right now, um, you mentioned the state of the democracy, you mentioned wildfire. I mean, some of these big problems, whether it's climate change, whether it's political polarization, whatever, do you think that business needs to play a role in solving some of these problems? And then and, and what sort of role do you think is, is where, where you'd like to allocate some, some business resources? Well, to the latter point, I think that's something that I'm still figuring out. Um, to to the former question, I think it's I think every business has to figure that out for themselves. I think business. I think for a lot of businesses, especially large ones, it has gotten very hard to ignore um, so some social issues. And I think for others, you know, it's 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 it hasn't been as hard to to avoid them. So I think every business has to make that decision for themselves, you know, and they'll make those decisions based on who their customers are and who their employees are, who their investors are. There's no one answer. Uh, you know, in some, in some cases, it will make a lot of sense for companies to engage themselves in, an, in a social issue or an environmental issue and, or a cultural issue. And in other cases, it just, it won't. 
Michael, it's been fascinating learning more about your journey and appreciate you freeing up the time for us. And also, um, it's great to kind of have you uh, in the Montana orbit. So hopefully our paths will cross uh, in person sometime soon. Yes, absolutely. I'm, I'm excited. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be a part of the Montana community and, and you know, do my part to be a, a good neighbor. Thanks for the welcome. If people want to learn more about any of the projects you're, you're, you're working on, like Wildfire Project, for example, where would you point people online? Uh, I think you can go to safewoods.com, which is the name of my nonprofit. It's still early, uh, but, but you, can, you can poke around the beta site of safewoods.com. I'm on LinkedIn, uh, so anybody that wants to reach out can, can hit me there. Um, there's obviously you know, a, lot, a lot of inbound, uh, or maybe not obviously, but there's a lot of inbound. And so sometimes it, it'll, it'll take me a minute to get to it. But, but uh, yeah, I would say that that's a good start. Awesome. Thanks very much, Michael. Thanks for your time. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a generous gift from UM alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. A New Angle is presented by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. With additional support from Consolidated Electrical Distributors, Drum Coffee, and Montana Public Radio. Keely Larson is our producer. VTO, Jeff Amet, and John Wicks made our music. Editing by Nick Mott. Social media by AJ Williams. And Jeff Neese is our master of all things sound. Thanks a lot and see you next time.